0: To another week of behind the lens. It's August. I can't believe it. Um, the year is more than half over. We're still having COVID issues. We still can't get everybody back in the theaters 100%. I being one of them. After getting vaccinated personally, I do not want to go sit in a the theater with my mask on for two and a half hours. Um, that may change with some films, but I get it. People, I totally get it. Um, we need to get to a point where no more masks and we can go and we can eat and we can drink and throw, have popcorn fights and have a good old time in the theaters. Cause there are some really good films out there, big and small, but thankfully we've got streaming, uh, for those that don't want to go to the theater, can't make it to the theater. Um, and there's some really good stuff out there. Of course, you've got something like uh, Jungle Cruise. It's a hit on streaming. It's a hit on the big screen. And it's worth seeing on both. Uh, I am in love with Jungle Cruise. It is a screwball. It shows a screwball comedy. is alive and well. The Rock and Emily Blunt are incredible. Watching them in Jungle Cruise is... It's like Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn in The Philadelphia Story. Uh, or in Bringing Up Baby. They are phenomenal together. Um, the cinematography is beautiful, especially the underwater sequencing, which was uh, d- shot by Ian Seabrook, uh, who's an amazing cinematographer when it comes to water. Uh, you were going to hear my inter- my exclusive interview with Ian today, but the powers that be at Disney won all interviews with the below-the-line, behind-the-scenes um artisans held off until august 13th i have no clue why just another ridiculous executive decision undoubtedly but the film it's action adventure it's fun it's a solid story lots of if you love the jungle cruise ride at disneyland you're going to love this film if you haven't been on the jungle cruise ride at disneyland see this film you're going to want to go on the ride The film is set up perfectly with all the really bad backside of water jokes that we have all come to know and love. We may cringe at them, but boy, they're awful fun. Um, And that is this film. And of course, how can I not love a film? And for those of you that know me and know me well will, will understand this. How can I not laugh at a film that references Kaiser Wilhelm and has Jesse Plemons decked out in an ostentatious German military uh, uniform from World War I, the Great War, um, while he's talking to and battling with bees. Um, You will love this film. It is a perfect summer film. Uh, And having said all of that, that was more important than telling you. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the costume designers, the production designers, the film editors, the, uh, the composers, the sound mixers, sound editors. We talk to them all. And talk to them all indeed. Um, today's show, jam-packed. I'm already running a couple minutes late, as you all probably figured. Uh, very excited. The midpoint of the show. I am so looking forward to speaking with these two filmmakers. Catherine O'Sullivan, Paul Awad, are going to be talking about their new film, A Savage Nature. Wow. It is a thriller. It's got a noirish feel to it. Beautifully shot. Very challenging. It's got a minimal ensemble cast, but shot primarily in one location inside a house. And it is a very congested house with doorways and lots of furnishings and great obstacles for lighting and cameras. So I can't... And it's inspired by a true story. That's kind of my theme today. Inspired by a true story. Jungle Cruise is inspired by the real ride, Jungle Cruise. savage nature is inspired by a true story and we're going to have Catherine and Paul tell us all about that. But before we get to Catherine and Paul, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Nick Barton. Nick Barton loves Westerns. His prior films include Dead Man Standing in Wichita. He loves Westerns and watching his films and particularly, particularly his newest one, Death Valley. It's easy to understand why he loves history and he also, Death Alley is inspired by true events, and not just any true events, but the true events involving the Dalton Gang, the Dalton Gang, one of the most notorious notorious gangs back in the 19th century. You've heard of Jesse James, the Jesse James Gang, you've heard of Bell Star, um, you've got the Younger Gang, all of this, and then you've heard of lawmen like Wyatt Earp, but a lot of people forget about the Daltons. And the Daltons had the distinction. Their demise came on October 5th, 1892. When the brothers Dalton and a couple other p- members of the gang decided they were going to do what had never been done. They were going to rob two banks in the same town on the same day simultaneously. Uh, what happened, it's no spoiler, The only one that walked away and into incarceration uh, was Emmett Dalton. This is the story of the Dalton gang and those final 24 to 36 hours planning and plotting on on October 4th, 1892 and following it over into the October 5th. 1892 attempted bank robber, dual bank robberies in Coffeyville. Um, It's a great piece of history, and I'm so excited that Nick has decided to bring it to life on the big uh, for the big screen. Of course, it is streaming tomorrow on August 3rd. Everywhere you can see it, and I think it does have some uh, limited theatrical releasing around the country. This was shot on location in Lawrence, Kansas, and some other places. Some historical museums got involved. Uh, the cast is impeccable. The production values are exceedingly well done. You've got horses. You've got pyrotechnics. You've got incredibly choreographed gunfights. Uh, you've got the the local foliage, forestry, cliffs, water of the region. This is not an easy undertaking to tell this story, Um, but the person who can tell it better than me is Nick Barton. So without any further ado, let's take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Nick Barton talking the a must-see Western, Death Alley. This is a really cool film, Nick. Well, thank you. That that means a lot to me. Thank you very much. So many people forget about the Dalton Gang.
1: I I agree. I I, I grew up in Kansas, and so I, you know, admittedly, and and I'm a little embarrassed to say out loud, but I I was unfamiliar with the story of the Dalton Gang growing up, and and then when I I decided I wanted to tell a bank heist story because I wanted something in which I wanted something in which the the a, a gang of of characters all simultaneously have the perfect plan go awry. So I started researching actual bank robberies to come across it. And, I came, and that's when I came across the Dalton gang story. And I said, well, I'm a Kansan who makes Westerns. I feel like I'm feel like i obligated to bring this story back into the public consciousness. So it, it's been a really fun undertaking. The community of Coffeyville has gotten way, just so supportively behind the whole thing. Uh, we had so many people from Kansas and regional horse riders and props masters and leathersmiths and sets and locations that just all got behind the project. I've never had anything that had quite such a strong community support. So it's it's been a really fun and cool undertaking.
0: Bringing history to life kind of has a way of doing that with communities. You take a look at the East Coast and all the Revolutionary War reenactments uh, and things that happened in the Philadelphia, the Boston area or the Civil War reenactments in Gettysburg and Lynchburg and other places. And I I really believe that people do, when they see history coming to life and being played out, I think that really engages them and wants them to be involved in it.
1: I completely agree. I think think one of the unfortunate realities of modern filmmaking is that we've gotten into a a terrible cycle of just resurrecting old stories. Yeah. And and you know, everything seems to be a remake now. I can't I can't imagine what some of the studio boardrooms look like, but I, I imagine there's executives who sit around and say, Hey, what's a story that we told twenty years ago that we can just reboot for those kids is now kids? And unfortunately there's so many amazing, true, authentic stories that yep. it's our obligation with posterity to carry forward that I that I just I I think more filmmakers should feel the obligation of of putting honesty and and history in front of people again.
0: You're so right. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, like films from twenty years ago because that's really about the time the the timeline. They don't look any further back than that. They go back about twenty years, maybe twenty five, and rehash and recycle. But they don't really dig back into the twenties, the thirties, take some silence bring them up modernize them uh, they don't do that of course looking at a lot of the epic films of the 30s and 40s and 50s you can't replicate them today because they were so well done anything you do is going to be a train
2: wreck
1: and honestly the other side of that coin is that I find that studios are some of the more risk adverse institutions today today yeah. I heard a, I heard an interview with Mel Brooks on fresh air in which he said, if I tried to make blazing saddles today, he couldn't. there's not a studio in America that would make that move. Yeah, And I think he's right. I yeah. think I think I think we're so driven to be risk adverse today, we're so overly rhetorically sensitive that no one wants to take a risk. And only in where you see independent films where people, you know, have the guts to really go for it unapologetically. And and for us, you know, I loved what you said about Retelling and reimagining and, and and reinventing it for a modern audience because you know I didn't try to tell a nine an 1890s story I tried to tell a story that 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 could could be swallowed up and and digested by today's generation That's why we made it unapologetically rock and roll That's why we wanted to introduce kind of vocabulary and music that that access like accessed a modern audience mm-hmm. I, I just I wish there was more. Vision for today's storytelling to kind of introduce new audiences to to history and to older concepts, but even more important than that, I, I wish there was more risk taking being done. Because, admittedly, I think films in the sixties and seventies and 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 back when there was a little bit more grit, yeah, and, and risk taken by the filmmakers, I think the movies were were honestly just better then.
0: So much of it now, it's just become a money machine. What's the bottom line going to be?
1: And, and you know only an independent film do people kind of throw away that precept, that's it right? <laughs> you know you, you I, I
0: was so fortunate because of the oh. producers team and the money that we raised on this because people didn't hold,
1: hold or cling the notion of some sort of return on investment and I think that's a really critical thing as you're building it's taken me over a decade to kind of learn to surround myself with with people who understand that, you know, it's our obligation to tell this story before it's our obligation to try to go out and cash grab. Mm-hmm. And when you surround yourself with those sort of people, you get to take chances. You yeah. get to be a little bit older. You get to cast outside of the box. You get to look at new locations to shoot in. And and these these things to me are are fundamental. Like our movie doesn't fit in a perfect box, which is why, you know, to some people it looks a little bit different but the reality is it's because we were able to do a lot of things that people just haven't seen done, especially
0: for the budget that we had to work with. Yeah, I mean, th- what you have done here with Death Alley, you talk about taking chances and taking risk, Nick, I mean, you've got horses involved, and not just one or two. You've got a, a whole slew of them. You have a large cast. You're on location. You're, you have... Horses and people going through forests and cliffs and water. You've got pyrotechnics. You've got massively choreographed shootouts, in which horses are also involved. Which that they can get so skittish. You've got to have a really good horse wrangler. Then you you're know lo- then you're know looking at history. Uh, and uh,
1: you know what's amazing about all that is that we. Uh, almost all of the stunt writing in the movie was done by the actual actors in the film. They they didn't shy away from the stunts. They choreographed and did their own fight choreography. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our lead actor Josh Allison, when he when the, the giant shootout occurs and he rides the horse right through the gauntlet of gunfire, yeah. that's him. That's him riding. There's not a stunt writer there. And and I think I think until you're in the, the heart of, of distributed film, it's hard to recognize how uh, how cool that is to work with actors yep. that go for it like that. Because most of the time, uh, most of the time they shy away from it. And this particular young, uh, energetic, really, really motivated cast—they they committed to it. And and you know there were some cuts and scrapes and bumps and bruises. And they—if you ask any one of them—they will tell you they would do it again in a heartbeat.
0: Oh, and, and that's and that's evident. It comes through with the performances. No, I was fortunate enough when I first came to LA 40 years ago, I was hanging out and befriended by a lot of the original stunt guys that were working with John Ford and John Houston, John Wayne. They were making all the westerns. They were doing a lot of the riding. So I got a really great inside look, especially at doing films that have a historical western quote motif running through it. So I always look very closely Uh, whenever I see a film like this, and you have the writing and a lot of action happening. And it's very obvious that all of your principals were doing it themselves because you can see the energy in the character when it's them, and you can almost feel the excitement they have that they're pulling this off themselves.
1: I completely agree. I think no matter what we try to do with CGI or visual effects, nothing beats a practical stunt. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to have a really amazing horse wrangler who dedicated a lot of time to training our principal cast. I was fortunate enough to have a cast who went for it, committed to the action, and then I had a phenomenal on-set special effects artist who oversaw all the shootouts, all the pyrotechnics, all of the explosion, uh, his name is tim mcgill and he's been in the business for about 50 years uh and i just i had a wonderful team of people around me who uh you know we we put full faith and trust in each other and everybody committed to it and uh, we were very fortunate because as much action and, and as many stunts and as many horse falls and rides that we nobody got hurt we didn't have one single injury on set the only issue we ever had was when we, uh, we we used one of, an old prop from an old 1860s uh, 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 camera that had an original gunpowder flash, uh-huh. and we accidentally forgot to turn off the smoke alarm, and we got <laughs> the fire department called on us because we turned to, we we set the thing off indoors.
0: Oh my God! So,
1: so that was that that was the first and only time we ever had uh, anybody show up, and unfortunately for us, when the fire department showed up. Uh, to turn off the fire alarm because we had to we had to clear all the sets out. They came in and said, "Are you guys shooting a movie here?" And I said, "Yes." And they said, "We don't want to be a bother, but would it be okay if we stuck around for about an hour and, uh, and and watched on set?" I mean, at that point, I can't say no. But they were they were wonderfully helpful. That was literally the only the only wrinkle we ever had on the shoot.
0: Wow. Well, you know, before you even you even get to start shooting, it all comes down to the script. And I love your con your script construct. I love how you, and you mirror your visuals so well to your story, that we see an older man with a small pocket Bible just walking through a city street, in 1931 or whatever. We don't know who that is at that point. You then you take us back in time, but you bookend up. You essentially bookend the film with this older man. We eventually find out it is Emmett Dalton then you you really hone in on the day, October 5th, 1892. But you give us a great montage that sets us up for the antics. For anybody who doesn't know who the Daltons are or were, you give that great montage that also brings in there uh, Heck Thomas, who is so key in the Dalton story. This is structured... So well, Nick. the The whole film it's a history lesson in and of itself, and you don't drone on. You find a great balance in the story structure and then in that visual structure, and I really like what you've done. It, it was for sure
1: a team effort. I, I got to say, you know, the film, the film from the first draft to what we actually shot, I, there were so many people on my team that had great. Comments and collaboration about how to get that piece in place. And, and I, I, I sincerely appreciate everything you said. You know, framing the Dalton story into the lexicon of what America is already familiar with in the chronology of the American Webster, it was important to me that they understood where the Dalton gang set in history between, yeah. you know, the James gang. Everybody now is familiar with Quiet Earth and Billy the Kid and Jesse James. And it was, it, and, and I think people forget that there was a time in which Bill Dalton was the largest bounty to have ever been placed on an outlawed history. And it was important to me. You know, they may have been familiar with terms like the Wild Bunch. They may have been familiar with the actual Longview Bank robbery. But the reality was, to rob a bank in the Wild West was an incredibly difficult endeavor. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the the modern colloquialism of what the West was like was that it was really easy to just run into a town, rob the bank and run out. And so for me, I really wanted to make it clear that there was a pocket of history where these guys dominated the public consciousness and then how incredibly difficult the tasks were that these outlaws actually delivered. And so um, to get all that into, you know, an hour and 40 minute narrative, it took an entire team of people to get that storyline right. I, I can't take credit for it because, I, I mean, there there were so many voices that went into helping craft that storyline. And then we, as you talk about the visuals, I really have to give a lot of credit to my cinematographer, oh. Nathan Smith, who participated four or five months before he started shooting in the development of the storyboards, the lookbooks, the lighting arrangements. And, you know, in a team that he had put together with Sam Scherter as his dapper and the other shooters, Lonnie Quattlebaum, Alec Walterscheid, Maxwell Frank, we we had a really great team. And at Nathan's lead, I was, it felt really wonderful to have uh, a partner in crime across the entire project who brought that visual component
0: alive well your visuals are are standout. i love the, i love the, the stripped back color dusty look the pale not a sepia but kind of a washed out sepia almost but for when we're in the banks inside the bank that dusty rose wall the gold in the safe we get vibrancy there and around the campfire on October fourth, when they're planning everything, you get the richness of that firelight and the inkiness of the dark as, as sun is setting, and of course then as as the lovely ladies of the evening show up to entertain them, um, but you're very judicious in how you use color. And once we get to October fifth, but for the bank itself in the interior you really pull back on the colors so that when there is blood that stands out you've got Nathan's got some great great shots in there after a gun has been fired and you talk about a smoking gun we see the smoke coming out of the guns and if this had been super saturated if you had heightened it to make it surreal that would have fallen by the wayside so i love Call it a minimalist color palette that you have, and it works so well to let the characters shine through and that minutiae in those little details, like the bullet into the into the boot. Um that that that,
1: credit all goes to two people that you know share completely different sides of the same coin and and they had such a strong vision for the colors and the, those two people were uh, Mark Anderson, who was our production designer who built most of our interiors mm-hmm. and really came up with the color scheme on, on the backdrop. And then our, our, our post production colorist, his name is Lewis Crucial. And both both of them did a, just an unbelievably strong job of executing that, that desaturated kind of less warm under underdeveloped tone that fits yeah. the kind of grit of the picture and then honestly a lot of it was just kind of philosophical questions about the nature of digital filmmaking because you know if, if, if it had been film, we would have had so much more latitude with the underdeveloped color oh, yeah but it, in, in, in digital cinema I find that you i find that most most pictures most commercials most music videos, they really over stylized colors, and they which loses some of the pathos of, of what's going on on the screen. So to me, uh, they and just really hit it out of the park. The two of them and executed, uh an an, an an underdeveloped tone yeah. that I think really takes you into uh, a more three dimensional world and forces you to kind of accept this reality without becoming too dominated by it it's a, it's a very very subtle thing uh but um, i appreciate the fact that he recognized it and but it took a lot of effort to get to get done you know the last person i need to call attention to just because his, his contribution was so many different places in the movie with our art director, Ryan Johnson, mm-hmm. who, who who flushed out all of our backgrounds and you know, like you call in you call out the the, the backdrops and the wallpaper and the behind the scenes sets. And you know, Ryan really went in with him and his art team and flushed those those locations out in terms of, you know Authentic posters that they created to put on the back walls, original artifacts that they they sprung out all over the interiors of the bank, and so you know those 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 universes that they created were so real that the second we walked into and were flushed out, you could just watch the light bulbs going off in everybody's minds around us. It was really fun. There's like a kid going into Disneyland for the first time seeing the
0: work that Ryan and Mark had put together. Well, what's so wonderful about seeing that, number one, with the denatured, with the stripped-back color and the lighting, um, it also metaphorically, it tacitly puts you as a viewer into history. Um, You feel that sense of history unfolding without it being shoved in your face. Um, because when you look at at the outfits and all, you know, the clothing on the on the guys, on the Daltons, it's it, men's clothing, as you know, hasn't really changed a whole heck of a lot over the <laughs> centuries. The old West stuff is still appropriate today, but having that that color pulled out and then honing in on these artifacts, you know, a shot here, a shot there the way the noose is tied and placed around the neck or and the body pulled you know the little things in the bag the glass etching on the teller window uh in the cage things like that tell us so much without wasting exposition from a dialogue and story standpoint and it really does add so much to the film yeah you
1: know, this is my third western and and i, I will say you know, the success of your picture when you're making a period movie like this nids and dies in the details, we were, our, our, we had a, a, an authentic leathersmith who made all of our saddles and belts and holsters from scratch to make them period authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our on-set armor, uh, a lot of the guns used in it were, were, were not replicas at all. They were original 1880s guns. Wow. And, and, and we went to great lengths to actually replicate a lot of the actual guns that were in the picture and you know you owe it to the historian you owe it to the story itself to get those details right yeah because if if you don't you really don't love the story to begin with when i first started out in uh in theater i had a wonderful mentor who said uh nick there's only one reason to make a movie and he said what and and i said what is that john and he said to tell a story Yep. And if you if you have if you're doing it for any other reason, if you're doing it to make money, if you're doing it to become famous, if you're doing it because you think it's cool, you're going to fail. I mean, it's just the reality. But if you have a story to tell and you feel the obligation to get all of the pieces of it right that you can, then you're you're going to succeed. And and what, what happens with it once it's out into the public space, you know, how what people think about it, the public's gonna have visceral reactions, positive and negative, to whatever they experience. I personally enjoy watching the discourse play out more than um, more than feeling like there's an ownership to, to what the discourse needs to be, mm-hmm. because to me, once once it's in lock, once it's been delivered, I've, I've done my job, but you only be proud looking back at the experience if the reason that you did your job was because you had a story to tell and you wanted it to exist.
2: Mm-hmm. And if you
1: do that, and everyone around you commits to that same philosophy, then I I, think, I believe so many things resolve themselves. I, I, I don't believe conflicts happen on set at that point because if you're there to serve the project and tell the story, there's no such thing as personality delivery. There's no such thing as a as, as long, hard days because people are willing to put in the extra effort. People are willing to go the extra mile because they see the value in this story existing.
0: Mm-hmm. What is it about Westerns? Because since this is yet another Western in your... And I'm going to tease you with that because we're going to have the rest of this uh, about another... Uh, there's about another five minutes... Uh, of Nick's interview we're gonna have that up for you on behind the Lens probably tomorrow uh, Depending on uh, How fast my editor feels like working and, and putting together a, a a video slideshow of the interview uh, but um, For more on Nick Barton you're gonna have to tune in to behind the Lens and find the full interview there tomorrow um, But see, 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 Death Alley tomorrow. Digital and VOD everywhere. If you love westerns, you're going to love this. If you love history, if you love that late 1800s, just bank robber stories are so much fun. Um, Really well done film, interesting film, and I highly recommend it for you. And we're going to switch gears right now. Now we're going to talk about some more twisted character studies and more inspired by true event stories. We've got Catherine O'Sullivan and Paula Wad joining us. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. How are you? We're wonderful, and we're excited to be talking to you. Yes. I'm so excited to have you guys because I, I am nuts about this film, A Savage Nature. Uh, oh
3: well, thank you.
0: I I love number one. I love films that are inspired by true stories, true events. Um, so it worked out so well that I happened to talk to Nick about his film uh, based on the last day of the Dalton Gang.
3: Yes, we were just <laughs> listening to that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and you know, there's something about the twisted psyche that's so interesting to watch. Uh, You know, with the Daltons, it's like, well, yeah, we're going to rob two banks in the same town at the same time on the same (laughs) day, and we're going to get away with it. Here we have some people with some very complex and twisted ideas about how they're going to get along in life. Um, And what you do with this story, I love the story, I love the characters. But oh, then thank you. you give us, I mean, Paul, the cinematography is beautiful, and the way you use the setting <clears> uh, and lensing it and give us this texture and this richness for uh, an almost neo-noir effect. It is deli- yeah, it's uh, delicious. <clears throat> I,
3: I am a big fan of the neo-noir, oh. so I'm, I'm so glad you appreciate that.
0: I, I love it. But, you know, briefly, tell us. Tell us, give us a synopsis of this story. I don't want to give anything away, so I'm going to put this in your hands. So if you give something
2: away, it's on you, not me. So <laughs> Yes, well, that that is always the challenge with this um, when we talk about it because we don't want to give anything away. But I would say... Um, it's about a couple on the evening of their wedding anniversary, and they've been having some trouble, but they're going to try to make a fresh start of things. And then, unexpectedly, um, some strangers uh, change their plans a bit, and so how they deal with that.
0: It's, to say the least, they, their plans <laughs> get changed a bit. Um, but this is what, what really, this sounds like a run-of-the-mill story. To anybody just hearing it. But it is so far from that. And it's because of your character construct. The performances. The performances in this film. You bring in Joanna Wicker. Who plays our seemingly happy or unhappy housewife. uh, Beth. Her husband. um, Former military. Now one of the local sheriffs. Uh, Steve. Played by Steve. Steve. is it Politus? Politus. Uh huh. Then we have our our untoward visitors who we do meet earlier <laughs> as obnoxious customers in the diner that Beth works at. Doug and JB, beautifully played by John Hudson Odom and Joseph Carlson. Uh, yes. A favorite character actor of mine that we don't see that often, Frank Riley the Third, who plays the other the the, the other sheriff, Frank. And then Rayanne Gonzalez, who is a a friend and coworker of Beth's. This is your whole cast. Yeah. And ev- yes. everybody plays a very integral part in this story. But as you watch these performances, especially Joanna and Steve, as Beth and Steve, oh my God. The disdain for each other. The, uh, you see on Beth's face, the former homecoming queen, Steve was the, you know, the big man on campus, the quarterback went on to military glory and now he's back there. And you can tell she doesn't want to podunk town. Uh, it, it's kind of like, uh, the film, the, the, uh, the very, very dark comedy drop dead gorgeous. Everyone wants to get out of the town, Yeah. Uh, And, and Beth wants out and you see it on her face and the fact that, oh, she's married to this guy and he came back to the town and then he's looking at her and it's like, who is this woman? You know, he's been gone overseas for tours of duty. And that adds such a sense of realism because we've seen and heard this in real life so often about when people go overseas for extended uh, military tours and come back, they are like strangers uh, yeah,
2: so yeah, I've had a couple of students who actually um, went for over, you know, overseas um, for tours and, and came back, and the, the struggle they have, as well as the, their loved ones have, in sort of renegotiating those relationships yeah. is is
0: is tough. And that's really what we see play out. We have she's cooking a nice anniversary dinner. Of course. What is this with having her serve him and put it on his plate? <laughs>
3: um, you know we we were talking we were talking the other day about that scene and and Joanna's reaction to um, the waiting to put it on his plate and that's actually one of my favorite two seconds in the movie just her reaction.
0: Uh, well, that's that is it's such a great reaction. But I'm seeing that I'm like. What woman today is going <laughs> to be putting the food on her husband's plate? Look, you throw it down. Hey, there's a fork in there. There's a knife. Scoop it out yourself.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> but, I think, also is this lovely character moment for oh. him, you know, that, that he's not, not quite aware how things have progressed. Yeah. And uh, so you feel that
0: uneasiness and uncertainty. But, you know, he, he's come home. He's hidden a, a nicely wrapped gift with a bow on top. You can tell he didn't wrap it himself. No offense, Paul, <laughs> but we all know guys don't don't really put that much neatness and care and, and perfectly creased seams in there. Um, and then hides it in a locked closet so she can't see it. And you're... His, you know, is he waiting to see how the night goes? Whether he's going to give her the gift? Their performances are so rich and so emotionally textured. You guys lucked out casting the two of them. Um,
3: we feel really blessed with our cast, ah. and um, just and the way they all just sort of work together. They all ended up living together. Um where you know in the same they lived on the set together uh-huh. and we do feel really blessed with their performances and uh yeah we uh, we're glad you appreciate it
0: oh my god it's like you just watch the two of them and but joanna is really interesting to watch from beginning to end um when we first meet her in the diner and she's very skittish about these you know uh, slovenly disgusting pigs who are in there as customers um we just look i just call it like i see it slovenly disgusting pigs kind of summarizes the two of them um, um in real life they're lovely people oh yeah but it's a testament to their skills as actors uh and, um,
3: and i'm a i'm a little hesitant to say too much but um the evolution of Joanna's performance is just—I oh. could not be more thrilled. Um, you know, just uh, where where she starts and where she ends. Yes. She just puts so much texture in it.
0: Oh, I mean, you watch this, uh, this in th- this whole character, um, but driving it, driving it, and you can feel it. We've seen this happen before. Is that whole? I was homecoming queen. I deserve better than this, I want better than this, and I'm not happy. And yeah. that is at the root of all of this for her. And yeah, and
2: the interesting thing about uh, the characters is, at least from my standpoint, is that you know sometimes from the outside of anybody's life we can see the simple solutions to people's problems, but people, when they're in living those lives don't necessarily see a, a path out. Mm-hmm. And so um, people take make choices that we would probably not make.
3: We think they should get a divorce.
2: <laughs> I think so,
0: too. Um, personally, that looks like a nice rural town back east, yeah. probably below the Mason-Dixon line, which means there's plenty of buses around. If you're that unhappy... <laughs> Go get a bus <laughs> ticket. Greyhound will take you anywhere.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, but all of these things make make this such a great character study about individuals, but then also situations, and you develop well, that this was... so thoroughly. It's just so yeah, much to bite into.
2: One of the things that intrigued us, in, and I think a theme of sort of when when someone sees the entire movie, they'll sort of understand this statement. But that how each of the characters is in a trap, in whether it's um, a trap by birth, circumstances, uh, society, a lack of imagination, and they're they're trying to negotiate out of those traps. And mm-hmm. All of them end up together one night, and and those are the results.
3: And and just to uh, there's there's a scene that we didn't end up putting in the final cut. Most everything went in except the scene, and it was actually a beautiful scene where someone that knew Beth from high school sort of talked about her glory days. Um, but it actually turned turned out to be a little too much Mm -hmm. because we thought all the information was there so it didn't end up in the final cut but it is that oh I was so promising in high school Uh, here's where I ended up
0: but and of course in the house you've done such your production design and your set decorator have done such an incredible job because this whole thing it's either in the there's a scene in the diner and then everything is in the house and you just look you come in the front door and as you lay your keys down on the side table by the staircase, there's a picture of them, a black and white picture of, of Steve and Beth as uh, happy as a couple. But then prominent, prominently in the middle is Beth wearing her homecoming queen crown and banner and gown. So, you know, right there, it's those kind of little touches that tell us this is still her mindset. How many people actually, you know, years after being married, you'd still have your homecoming queen picture sitting there for everyone to see the minute they walk in your house?
3: You know, it's it's sort of that Bruce Springsteen song, "Glory Days." Yes, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I, but I do think I do think it is hard sometimes for people when um, their glory days were in high school. Yeah. Um, to, and, and they feel like they didn't have that appreciation now that they're in the quote-unquote real world working a job or going on to college. How do they reassess their value in society, you know, now that yeah. that assessment is over? So it's, it's, I think we see this in real life with people, yes. you know, that they do want to keep reliving high school.
0: Yeah, and that's why you very you very smartly took out that one scene because you have so much other texture happening that that provides all your exposition. Yeah. Just look around this house as the camera. I mean, Paul, the camera work is amazing. Um, um as we go around the house. Uh, well,
3: I want to I, I I did a little bit of the shooting and I want to give a lot of credit to um our two two DPs who mm-hmm. um who were actually students of mine, film students of mine. And um, they were just, I mean, two really talented guys, Avaro and Donovan. Um, But, yeah, we were really happy with the look of it and how it gets a little more stylized as we go through the Mm -hmm. film.
0: It gets more stylized, but what I also love is how you play with light and your lensing because we also go from being more observational Um, Steve comes home and the camera's up on the stairs shooting down and slowly comes down the stairs. Everything is a bit wider. We see Beth taking in the groceries and things are wider. But as the night moves on, the camera comes, your framing comes in tighter so that we're really looking at some very tight mid shots. uh, Almost bordering on a a two-handed close-up, a two-person close-up. Um, And it really is very effective for bringing us into into the moment. We are there with them. And then your lighting also gets richer. Um, The lighting comes down. We feel and see more of negative space comes into play through the dark woods of some of the furniture, um, from the staircase, from the closets. Uh, and you know, with the lighting and the angles because this house, you guys really work the angles in this house with these doorways <laughs> and these corridors and they're not wide and it just adds um, so much to yeah, what's we, happening. We
3: ended up spending um a lot of time particularly in the uh near the front door and the stairwells. So we, we did try to make sure each time we returned there they it seemed like a new location. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that worked.
1: I um, think we it, also
3: we also um, wanted to shoot Joanna differently throughout the film. Um, you know, Catherine changed her costume and her hair changes, and and so we had a lot of fun with that.
0: Uh, it it truly you never feel like you're looking at the same thing
2: twice. That's you, good. That's it, good because. We were shooting in a real location somebody's real house. they were so gracious to let us take over their house um, but it does have its limitations like any real location and we wanted to make sure that we could uh, film it as various as possible yeah. without you know revealing the limitations of the home
0: it re- you really make wonderful use and really move those cameras around and, you know, adjust the lighting. And the lighting is something that's very key in this film because it it takes place over the course of one night. But you weren't shooting all-night shoots for this, were you? You were doing... No. Um,
3: (laughs) We we started about noon, and we would sort of finish after dusk at about 10. Mm -hmm. Um, Our actor, Steve, actually had newborn babies at home. So he had to leave at the end of every shooting day. So we tried to make it easy and not shoot nights for him.
0: So what kind of challenges did that present in terms of your lighting so that we feel the night and the night is moving along and it's getting darker and it's getting more intense? How did that impact your visual design? And also how beneficial were all these heavy trees around the house and giving you some much-needed darkness.
3: Uh, The the trees were wonderful. Um, Yeah, it was a little... um, You know, we had to track the characters sort of through the day, but we also had to track the day. Like, at what time was this scene, what time was that scene? Um, And it was challenging, and I... I think we did a pretty good job. Um, maybe certain parts aren't as consistent as I would like, but, yeah, it was a challenge.
0: Well, I, I like how we get into the third act, and essentially we do have, you know, morn is breaking, so we've made it through the night. Um, yes. yes, But I love how we get that complete, that completeness of the night, thanks to your sound design. The sound mix is really well done here. Um,
3: Um, We actually, uh, I'm going to give some credit to uh, Studio Unknown. Um, They are a great um, sound post-production facility, and they did a wonderful job with us. Um, We were thrilled with their work.
0: Yeah, I I like the sound mix because when you're in a location like that that is so remote, You're going to hear things coming from miles away, very faintly, but it's going to increase in increments as it gets nearer to you. But you've also, you don't have the city noise. You don't have neighbor noise. So you're really going to hear the the tires on dirt and the gravel as it's driving on the street, the motor of the, the engine on the truck. Um, and I love how all of that comes into play from a sensory standpoint. You really, you know, you ticked all the boxes here, guys.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate you watching it so carefully. We we did try to put a lot of detail in there, and we are hoping people would see that.
2: Yeah, one of the hopes we had was that if, if somebody watched it a second time, knowing the full story, then they would start to pick up on all the details and clues.
3: We'd love for people to watch it twice.
0: Oh, I, I'm definitely watching it again because there, <laughs> there is so much in there. Um, just when you look at the tchotchkes and the things around the house and what's placed where and the guest room that's downstairs, um, even the bathrooms, Um and how rude of somebody to wipe bloody hands on a nice white towel? Uh, you know.
3: Yes, he was a terrible guest.
0: An awful, awful house guest. And then we have another one that is eating the roast with his fingers. We know there were there were full place settings and candles lit and everything on the table. So there was a fork yeah, there. Yeah,
3: it was a nice dinner party. <laughs>
0: But you know all these. I just love little things like that that speak so loudly as to the, the specific characters and who yeah, they well, are.
2: The actors were just wonderful. Oh my God. Um, and uh And it was. I we Paul and I have talked about this before. It was because we all come from theater backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, um, our actors uh, are these. You know, established professional theater actors, and Paul and I both have theater backgrounds. It had that same collaborative spirit, and if there was anything that didn't track well for the actors in terms of motivation or um, the logic of the story, we would just sit down with them like we would for a new play, and we would talk mm-hmm. it out and rewrite dialogue and change something, and then we'd go shoot. So they were fabulous, um, and deserve some credit for really, um, you know, challenging us to make sure their characters were doing what made sense make for Make sure the them. logic happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and that this, that begs an interesting question for the two of you. With a theater background, and Catherine, you are, you know, a, an accomplished playwright, you know, is there a, was there a learning curve for you with this film? Because I can so easily see this film, this story, being performed on stage.
3: You know, very um, I'll theatrical. let Catherine speak to that. Um, there was a big space between where we wrote it and when we made it, and Catherine had contemplated doing it as a play.
2: Yeah, I had that same reaction, Debbie, that like because of the one location, it lends itself very much to um, a play kind of performance. Yeah. Um, and in terms of learning curve of... Um, working as a film, Paul and I had worked on a number of projects before, so I I was very comfortable with um, that. And, you know, everybody wants the the film, the story to be better. And that was one of the things I really appreciated. We had this marvelous cast and we had this great crew. And Paul and I were all committed to making the best story possible so um ego tended not to get in the way and if mm-hmm. if they didn't like our words then they went away and we found something else you know you don't want to get um in in the way of your own story and
3: that also probably had to do with us all being in this one location for extended time
0: <laughs> but this was a really this was a fast shoot though you shot in what 11 days 10 11 days
3: uh We shot in 11 days because um, that's what our budget sort of worked out. And also the way it worked out with our cast, who um, were very busy people.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, so we were were lucky to be able to have them for that short period of time. And I think because they were so good and we were asking relatively a, a, a modest amount of time from them, I think that some of them had... Like between shows or whatever they were working on, were able to work this into their schedules. And so we were we were motivated to be very efficient. Yeah.
3: but shooting um shooting a feature in eleven days is
2: crazy. It's crazy. Is, it's it's is insane. crazy.
3: And, you know, if it had been a different script, it might have been impossible.
0: Well, because of the fact that you limited the number of cast, you are in one location, um, that was your that was your saving grace. Yes. Uh, the- um
3: I, I will I will mention one other person. Uh, the cook in the diner is a good friend of mine, John <laughs> Morrison, who uh is sort of my lucky charm. So it was oh. nice to have him there.
0: Oh, he's your Hector Elizondo.
3: He <laughs> is.
0: <laughs> oh everybody needs one of those. Gary Marshall had Hector. Everybody needs a Hector. Every filmmaker. Yeah, he's my Hector. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, how challenging was the editing process for this film? Because this, if you can't maintain the tension, if you can't build that suspense and accommodate all the twists and turns that we see happen, it, it will fall flat, no matter how good the performances are. So your editing is really, it's a real pot boiler.
3: Um, I think my biggest fear in going into editing was that we would reveal too much information. Um, And also, um, it may, I mean, I think some of the audience might find it having a little bit of a slow start, and we really weighed how quick that start should be. Um, So those were really some of the challenges. Once it got moving, we were fine, but how much information do we give and and how slow should the beginning be? The dinner scene, initially started as a real dinner scene, it was long. Um the the anniversary dinner
2: mm-hmm. scene. Yeah, but we had a lot of conversations about do we need this exchange? Does the audience is the audience smart enough to get this already? You know, and so even in the edit, you're kind of doing your final rewrite on the script. Right.
3: A lot of the dialogue came out in the edit. Yeah.
0: Because this, you don't between Beth and Steve. You don't need dialogue. Right. We, you want that uncomfortableness, that uncertainty. The, it's like, why am I with her? Why am I with him? What am I doing here? Um, you yeah. know
3: that that um, that anniversary dinner. I wanted to hear the clinks of the china and everything. I wanted yeah. it to be the most awkward.
0: Well, and you get that with her doing the serving. Number one, with her, what she's wearing. I And I know you did the costuming, Catherine. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, did, did she save that from her high school
2: days as homecoming queen? <laughs> uh,
3: that was all Catherine.
2: <laughs> well, my idea was that, you know, she is, in a weird way, uh, a male gaze fantasy of what a homecoming queen would look like after, you know, when you married her. Mm -hmm. And um, she's sort of playing that part, right? That's the role she's learned to play. And so I wanted sort of to capture that. um, And then, of course, um, you know, people's costumes change throughout the story.
0: Very much so. And they change, uh, especially with Beth, and it changes with her mindset, yeah. Um, and it's really interesting. You know, a very cool element of this film, uh, and I know it's not on the property, so you had to like build this, is a well. And I think a lot of people okay. don't realize that there are still places, especially on the East Coast, with well water. Yeah. Um, and oh. it's got to, it, ha- it has to get plumbed into your house. And if the well runs dry, you don't have water coming out of your faucet until you fix a pump to go deeper down into the ground to get your water uh, out.
3: Well, I grew up with one of those really deep wells, and, like, really, really deep well. And it had always been, like, you know, a potential crime scene. Like,
0: of course. Like, it's really
3: deep. And um, so that well was a, that I grew up with was the inspiration for the well.
0: It's very cool. It's very cool and yeah. the way you have the camera angled uh in several scenes just is outstanding because oh well it, i'm glad you enjoyed it it gives you a sense of vertigo going up vertigo going down uh and you know metaphorically speaks to the possible bottomless pit of someone's emotions uh the the, yeah, bla- and, the black tra- hole
2: It was really um, interesting because there wasn't a well, so uh, we had a well, pieces fabricated, and then Paul and uh, the DPs got very creative with how to put these in a variety of ways to capture the the depth like that.
0: No, it really works so well, but there's so much metaphor in that well for these characters um, especially for Beth and uh, I just really love how you have how that was shot to really send that that metaphor home to really make that connection
3: um, and and um, there's I probably something I can talk about but just how yes. how the last little bit of the well is used um, and our main characters uh, you know is something we really enjoyed uh, shooting that last little bit in the well.
0: Oh well, that I mean, that's just that's your payoff. That's your money. Yes. That's your money shot. Come on, yeah, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's your money shot. <laughs> I mean, that that yeah. you know, I was why I kept hoping. I'm like, yes. Uh, <laughs> and then we get a little Easter egg there, and I'm like, oh my god. Um, so yeah, no, you guys did such a great job with this. And another thing you did, you didn't overlook the scoring. You did not overlook the music of this film, but you also working with your composer with Rob Goki, you also did not give us something expected. You kept us, a, you know, a, you know, off kilter, um, um,
3: that was my first time working with Rob. We had known him from a film community, and uh, Rob was so great. The minute I had another project, I called him up like instantly. Um, Rob is so talented. He's so quick, mm-hmm. um, and fun he's, to work with. He's
0: fun to work with. Yeah. Yeah. So now tomorrow, the film is out there. Everybody can see it. Which yes. they sh- which they should do because it's so much fun, um, you know. It's not a comedy, but it's just so fun to watch. <laughs> you know, it's it's like being on the freeways and the turnpikes. You love seeing a train wreck, and you love to see people because you you. It's like, thank God, that's not me.
2: Yeah. Um, oh yeah.
0: And, yeah. That's what
3: everyone should walk away with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, thank God, that's not me. But it's it's just inherent in nature, in our human nature, that we wanna see things like this. We are we gravitate towards it. Um Well
2: I think, you know, I I can speak for myself. I think Paul feels the same way too, but I love these crime shows, you know, I'm one of those people oh yeah. that watches all of them. Yep. And um you you just watch them with fascination um... because i think you're trying at least for me i'm fascinated by human nature and psyche and what makes people do the things they do and so I think we're fascinated when we see those things happen. And you're right. It, it makes us relieved that we're not living that life.
0: <laughs> you know, that, that's why I, I'm like you. I like the crime shows. And then I like hoarders. And, you know, and I keep thinking, oh, thank God. I better clean my house. I don't want it to look like that. Uh, I don't I have uh, the same reaction. Catherine watches hoarders as oh, well. Oh, <laughs> It is, it is, have, have you, there's another one, there's another trash show out there, um, but it's not as fun as Hoarders, and then you cap it all off with Bar Rescue, so that, because you, you need a drink after watching crime shows and Hoarders, <laughs> um, but, but you get all of that, the, all of those feelings you get with a savage nature, because that is who we are as people, yeah. and it's like, what's gonna, what is it that's gonna push us? To the edge and you yeah really well i examine I, that
2: i'm glad you say that and i hope it feels like i know our actors did a lovely job sort of bringing the humanity of their characters and i hope it does feel like you know we're trying to i i felt like sympathy for all the characters even the people car- characterizing the bad guys mm-hmm. i felt sympathy for you know um so i hope that Everybody looks at that and is intrigued by that.
0: Well, I have to say, it did reach a point. I was feeling bad for JB. Yes. Um, Feeling bad for, I never really felt bad for Doug. Maybe a tiny bit. But I felt bad (laughs) for JB because he's getting, you know, pushed to the side. He's being used. Yeah.
3: And he's just trying to be a loyal friend.
0: And that's that's exactly what he's trying to do. Because yeah. you know he's not the brains of any operation anywhere. So. Well,
2: and, and that, that speaks to Joe Carlson, um, the actor, because to be able to bring out that layer in him and not just play it like a bad guy, but to play it like a bad guy that also has something going on underneath the surface, I thought was great.
0: You know, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, okay, because of this dinner party, things are not going well. And, you know, and JB at one point, he does have some bloodshed on his body and he's like a little kid crying. And it's just, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think
3: that just came out of Joe's performance.
0: Oh, my God. It
3: was. We were filming it and that was just the performance and it was it was wonderful.
0: Oh my it it just adds so much to the character. Yeah. and, and yeah. in that moment you really feel badly for him cuz like where's Doug? Yeah, we all know what Doug's right. doing. Um right. <laughs> but here's poor JB. He's out in the dark and you know what's happening and then all of a sudden he's he's holding
2: himself cuz he's hurt. And you're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> Poor I know but in in that moment there's like a psychological hurt and a physical hurt, yeah you know so yeah it's oh so
0: at the end of the day now that everybody is going to get to see this wonderful film come tomorrow you know what did the two of you learn about yourselves as filmmakers as collaborative partners in br- in telling this story and bringing it to life um, that's an interesting question. Um, it was...
3: Well, actually, I don't know. Catherine.
2: <laughs> well, we've collaborated a lot, so I think that... Um,
3: not really on a crime type thing. Not,
2: yeah, but I think one of the things that was actually became apparent to me maybe for the first time is um how much we develop a shorthand in our communication with one another Mm -hmm. and that i think on a set the cast and crew sense that we have this shorthand with one another and um we're almost like a creature with two heads right (laughs) (laughs) like if somebody has a question and paul's busy with something they can ask me, and then I can relay it to Paul, or however that goes. So oh. I think that became really apparent on, on this project when, for me.
3: When I, we sort of figured this out too. When I mean, we collaborated on the script, but when we got to the set, directing, I was just concentrating on directing. So it really took Catherine to sort of be the the defender of the script,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: so we'd have a lot of those conversations.
0: Well, job well done, guys. I can't wait to thank see you what you so do much. next. And I hope you'll come back on the show again. You guys are just so, too much fun.
2: Too oh, much fun. Well, we'd, we'd love we to. We would love to.
0: Oh, my God. Guys, thank you so, so much. This thank is, you for having us. Oh, my God. Such a privilege to have both of you. I always love it when I have lovely filmmakers and, and great films. And <laughs> well, I, You're a double dipper here. Or a triple, you know? Third <laughs> time's two, a chunk. Two for the price of one. That's it. Oh, guys, thank you so, so much. And hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. That sounds okay. wonderful. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Catherine O'Sullivan and Paul Awad, co-writers. Paul directed. Catherine also produced and did costume. Paul also did some of the cinematography, A Savage Nature, It's available tomorrow, Uh, DVD and digitally. And, of course, Death Alley, the final hours of the Dalton Gang. That's available tomorrow. Great stuff. And, of course, Jungle Cruise. See it, see it, see it. It is so much fun. And then go to Disneyland and uh, ride the Jungle Cruise ride. That is all the time we have. I'm not going to say it. You already know. Um, Pam's in the the booth laughing. Yes, we we went over again. Um, But next week, Jessica Devaney's back with us talking about her film Pray Away. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.